this um, section of Jesus' story, I've been thinking it'd be great for us to memorize one of the key verses to help us not forget the central theme as we work through these stories. And I'm wondering if actually this can become something we do regularly. So every time we get into another chunk of the story, we'll find ourselves a key verse that helps us remember the center of that teaching. But I'm not very good at remembering Bible verses, are you? Maybe you are. You're probably better than me. My family and I, we've been helped in this using short songs, um, simple songs, because music has this special power to lock words in our minds, to help us find our way back to them time after time, or to work from just a little bit out to the holder, the, the, the wider story. If I say amazing grace, who can tell me what comes next? How sweet the sound. It works like this. This power to remember, uh, even maybe down through generations, is something that God makes use of as well. Here's him talking to uh, Moses and instructing Moses. He says, write down this song, teach it to the Israelites, have them sing it. And then he says why he's doing this. He says, the song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten. Uh, even by their descendants. So God has kind of put this memorability into songs. He's used this among his people. So uh, our amazing musicians have created a special song, and I have to warn you, it's a little bit catchy. Ellen's going to help us with it this morning. We're going to sing it together every week um, before our talk for the next few weeks as we try and remember our summary verse together. We're going to remember the theme of this big section, and perhaps if this works well, we'll make a habit of doing this too. Now, I wanted to use one of the verses we'd be directly teaching from, one of the verses we're covering, but there isn't one there that quite captures everything, so I had to reach ahead a little bit to the end of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus states what we're going to see again and again over the next weeks. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So it's memory verse time. Let's learn this song. All right, thanks, Matt. So it's a bit of an echo. So I'll sing a bit, and then you sing it back to me. And then we join together at the end. So can you give us a confidence? Let's go from the top. I sing it first, sing it back. Here we go. Ah. Oh. 
We are very thankful for our talented and creative musicians. And if you didn't get that this time, don't worry, you'll get it next time. And the time after, and the time after. In fact, there is no escape whatsoever from this verse. So we're going to remember it. Now, where are we up to in Matthew's gospel? Well, we're working through the, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. We saw Jesus was teaching with authority, right? We saw he was teaching with authority. And then as the story continues after that block of teaching, we find Jesus acting with authority. And last week, Peter was helping us think about how there is this, um, this kind of lifestyle cost of following Jesus, how there's this relational cost of following Jesus. And I was thinking, how is that connected to authority? But here's how it's connected. You could think of that as bowing to the authority of Jesus in your life. That's how it's connected to authority. So we're going to carry on this week to another dimension of Jesus' authority. We're going to dive right in, and we're in Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 23. Michael is reading for us this morning, and it's page 973, if you've got one of those blue Bibles. Matthew chapter 8, and we're starting at verse 23, page 973. Yeah. Then he got up into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves. And it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Thanks, Michael. So what do we got today? I've been working on my alliteration for you. Today we've got fearful fishermen. We've got awesome authority. And we've got challenge and comfort. Fearful fishermen, awesome authority, challenge and comfort. I'm really getting the hang of this alliteration thing. So let's, let's um, start with these fearful fishermen. Now, you might remember from earlier in Matthew's telling of Jesus' life story, or perhaps you just know, that some of his key 12 disciples uh, were fishermen before they were disciples. And notice in that first verse, if you did, that we read they got into the boat rather than a boat. It's not just any old boat, but quite likely. This is actually one of their boats, James uh, and... Uh, his brother left their boat, and maybe this is their boat they're coming back to, one of the disciples' own fishing boats. Um, been left behind earlier. Now it's repurposed as Jesus' water taxi, and, and maybe also like a portable preaching platform from time to time. And I could imagine, actually, the fisher disciples might be quite excited about this. They're like, hey, a life on the ocean wave, a home on the rolling sea. We're back at it. I like this water thing. I like this sailing thing. They might think following Jesus into fishing for people um, rather than just heading out fishing, eh, it's not quite the same, but there's a little bit of contact there still. Back on the water, nonetheless. But their reminiscing is over pretty quick because that plain sailing comes to a sudden end with a ferocious storm. Now, I was thinking about this. You'd like to believe those fisher disciples had seen a storm or two in their previous life, so they'd be up to the challenge. But so it seems from what's written, this is no ordinary storm. You, you actually could translate what's written here literally as a great earthquake 
in the lake, a great earthquake in the lake, because the word used is um, seismos, from which we get seismic and your seismic activity and seismometers and all the things to do with earthquakes. And, and uh, actually, elsewhere, when this word shows up in Matthew's gospel, it's translated earthquake uh, every time. And uh, there seems to actually be something epic going on in Matthew's gospel every time there's an earthquake. So I looked for them for you. Where are the earthquakes? Well, there's one when Jesus dies, there's an earthquake and uh, everyone's terrified. There's another. When Jesus rises, there's an earthquake, and the, the, the stone is rolled away, and then Jesus tells us about one more earthquake he's expecting as a sign of the end. So earthquakes in general, seismos, big deal in Matthew's gospel, marker for something key. And now what have we got here? An earthquake in the lake a great earthquake. And I've wondered whether there could perhaps be something supernatural going on, particularly here. For one thing, spoiler alert, next week Jesus is going to meet a whole legion of evil spirits on the other side of the lake. And you might remember last week, Peter pointed out that Jesus is moving from Israel, the historic Jewish lands, over into a kind of foreign territory here. He's reaching the rest of the world, his first step outside of Israel. Perhaps there's something epic about that kind of step outside of God's people into the wider world, stepping out as the savior of the world, not just the Jewish people. Or maybe there's supernatural opposition to exactly that, which is what causes this storm, an attempt to sink the ship and stop the show. Now, I speculate about things because that's what my mind likes to do. It's like, ooh, that's interesting. Ooh, that's interesting. But the, the text doesn't tell us why this storm is there. So it's obviously not the main point of what we're thinking about today. But the fact that Jesus rebukes it rebukes the winds and the waves which threaten the boat, does suggest they're doing something wrong, right? You don't tell people off for being themselves. Like you're like, uh, it's, it's so annoying that this tree has grown apples. I rebuke you for growing apples, apple tree. You know, but it sounds like here, something has gone wrong. There's something out of place. So it's definitely fair to see some opposition. And I guess we do need to see this is a life-threatening storm. It's not just a, a spot of bother and a dash of rain or kind of a, a drizzle settling in. The disciples... Uh, including those experienced fisher disciples, think they are going to die. We're going we're gonna to drown, they say. Literally, they say, we are perishing right now. It is happening right now. We're perishing. They know the boat. They know the lake. They know the storms that belong on this lake, and they think they are going to die. Uh, in Mark and Luke's telling of this same story, the boat is actually filling with water as this is going on. That's how serious this is. Now, you can bet they've tried all the fisher things they've got up their sleeves. I don't know what fishermen do when they hit a storm. Row harder, row softer, chuck the oars overboard, raise the sails, drop the sails, walk the gangplank. I don't know what fishermen do, but these guys know what they're doing. They've tried it all, and they're in trouble. The situation's desperate. And then there's Jesus. Now, Jesus is there with them. He's there in the middle of this storm quake, but he's asleep. Seriously, how, how does that happen? Confession time. When we were actually talking about how to approach this text, we talk as a kind of team each week about what we're teaching on. Uh, I, I wanted to spot somebody who had slightly droopy eyes, looking a little bit sleepy, and squirt them with a water pistol and see if they woke up. <laughs> Health and safety ruled it out. So you, you, um, sleepers, you're allowed to stay asleep this morning. It's going to be okay. But... Uh, <clears throat> How is Jesus asleep in the middle of the storm when the waves are over the boat? Well, potentially, it's quite a big boat. 
it's a very generic boaty boat word. It can mean all sorts of things from the smallest possible boat to one that the Apostle Paul travels on later with a garrison of soldiers, a bunch of prisoners, cargo, crew, even a lifeboat. Not quite the Titanic, but it can mean a fairly big boat. So maybe Jesus is below deck. Maybe that's why he's not getting slapped in the face by the waves. But, but even then, surely it's a bit of a roller coaster in the middle of this storm. And still, Jesus is asleep. Perhaps he's wiped out from all the ministry he's been involved in. He's been healing all the sick, casting out all the demons. Maybe that takes a real toll. That might make sense to us. Perhaps Jesus rests well because he knows his safety comes from the Lord. Perhaps some of the commentators speculate, Jesus chilled about this because he knows that he has to accomplish the mission of going to the cross and no mere storm can sink him. Well, either way, he's asleep. The fearful fishermen wake him up with their urgent words, Lord, save, we're perishing. And then the story suddenly turns as Jesus demonstrates his awesome authority. And the first thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus demonstrates his own authority. Just like he taught with his own authority, he demonstrates his own authority as he stills the storm because he doesn't say, Father, Lord, God, still this storm. He speaks to the storm himself. And the storm obeys. What kind of man is this? Is the kind of shocked response from his followers. But really, really they could have answered their own questions if they thought about this just a little bit. Now, the book of Psalms is the Bible's songbook, the songbook of the Jewish people. And like we talked about as we started this morning, songs lock things in people's memory. So some of what they could have and probably should have remembered from the Psalms, well, it speaks about this. Really clearly. Here's our Psalm 89. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord Almighty, your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. That sound familiar? Who's ruling over the surging sea? Who stills the waves when they rise up? It is the Lord God Almighty who has that power. Oh, here's, a, here's another one they could have picked. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Song's actually written about boats on the sea, fishermen on the sea. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. How's that for a fit? Who does that? The Lord. So when Jesus demonstrates his authority, when he stills the storm, he shows us and he shows them his true identity. What, what kind of man is this? Well, of course, he is no mere man. He is the Lord. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, we read about the creation. We see God commanding and the waters obeying. God said, let there be a, a, a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And it was so. God said, let the water under the sky gather to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. When we see God commanding in creation and the waters obey him, and now we see Jesus commanding and the waters obey him, well, Jerome, um, one of the uh, ancient, ah, I thought I had a slide for that, but I don't. Jerome's one of the ancient uh, commentators, Bible scholar and translator from about 400 AD. He puts it this way. He says, creation recognizes its creator. That's what's going on here. Creation recognizes its creator is walking inside it. And John's gospel, John's telling of Jesus' story, tells us right at the outset about this. In the beginning was the word, this is famous stuff. 
The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same thing we're learning here today. He was with God in the beginning. And then it tells us this tie with creation. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. It's beautiful, really, because in this tiny story, you see two cardinal central doctrines, two key teachings about Jesus. One, he sleeps. Jesus is truly human. Two, he commands the winds and the waves. Jesus is truly divine. And in the, in the, in the Jewish mind, water isn't this nice place you go to play and sail. Water isn't this nice kind of thing and this attractive. It's a symbol of chaos. It's powerful. It's dangerous. It's where the unspeakable monsters of the deep live. And Jesus absolutely walks all over it, figuratively here, literally in a few weeks' time. Um, and he doesn't carry the disciples safe through the storm, putting like an envelope around them of protection or lifting the boat off of the waves. Notice what he does here. He eliminates the storm. He destroys it entirely. It's not just uh, awesome authority pr to protect in it. It's awesome authority power over it. Okay, so fearful fishermen awesome authority. Third thing, challenge and comfort. Now, you can't read this story without taking some time to reflect on Jesus's recorded words for us. It's easy to picture Jesus as this nicey-nicey, cutesy-cutesy, gentle-gentle kind of guy, wouldn't say boo to a goose, as we say. But these are sharp words, uh, especially like, for people who left everything to follow Jesus. For people who daringly walked into the boat. For people facing a sudden, deadly, potentially even supernatural storm, you might expect just a little bit more compassion from Jesus. Like, oh, well, I know it's a bit stressful, guys, but I can help you here. But it's pretty clear that Jesus is not impressed. You of little faith. Uh, why are you so afraid? And the, the underlying words in the original language that Jesus chooses don't leave us room to spin this into something more positive. Uh, Bruno is one of the commentaries I've been reading. He translates this uh, more literally as, why are you such cowards? Little faiths? Huh. The original words are strong. That might feel harsh given the disciples are perishing. They are dying. They're being destroyed. But that's what Jesus says. We were here a couple of weeks back when we were talking about amazing faith. A couple of weeks back, we were looking at the amazing faith of uh, a centurion that Jesus remarks on. Well, the disciples do not have an amazing faith. That is clear. They do not make that grade. Now, it is important we don't go too far here and think Jesus calling out his disciples for being afraid means we should never be afraid in the face of anything. Think about Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the cross. He's sorrowful. He's troubled. He's in anguish. He sweats like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, Jesus isn't saying here, followers of me should never be afraid of anything. That's, that's, that's not what's going on. Fear, in the ordinary sense, is not opposed to faith, says Calvin big dude of history. Being troubled about what's ahead of you does not um, mean the same thing as lacking faith. It's a, a fear that flows maybe from what Peter was talking about last week, counting the cost of following Jesus. There, there's probably some right fear in there. 
recognizing there's a price to pay, but a faith that walks through that cost anyway. So I think what Jesus is criticizing here is not just fear, but excessive fear. A fear that swallows faith, a fear that defeats us, that stops us in our tracks, the sort of fear which turns us back, causes us to flee. That's why you get this kind of cowardly sense from the word there, paralyzing, crushing fear. And a fear that comes out of failing to grasp what kind of man this is. Have you been there? I'm not a man of uh, impressive faith. I think if I was on a, a boat like that today, I'm pretty sure I would be a terrified coward. Uh, a bit of a shower, even some drizzle. Don't have me cowering below deck. Um, all it takes for me to forget who's in the boat with me, to think is going down, a little ripple on the water, I would think. But I shouldn't settle for that. Neither should you settle for faith like that. We should hear Jesus' challenge. We should seek to stretch our faith because Jesus will stretch our faith. He'll help us see more and more clearly what kind of man this is. One who tells us he will never, never forsake us. One who tells us he will never, never leave us. One who is with us always, even to the very end. One who the wind and waves obey. One who death itself cannot resist the Lord Almighty. When we read this, we should, we should hear a challenge about the state, about the quantity, about the strength of our faith. But you know what else is here for us? There's a comfort. Because Jesus hears and Jesus helps those with little faith. He doesn't reject their cry because their faith is small. He doesn't like shoot these disciples a kind of yawny, one eye open, uh, come back later when your faith is stronger, then I think I'll help you, but not yet. Heading back to sleep. <laughs> Jesus doesn't, as he is well able, and we'll see in a few chapters, just like go, I'm just stepping off the boat here, boys. Your faith is so weak, you can go down, I'm going to get me some new disciples and walk off across the lake. He doesn't do that to them. There's challenge here, but there's also comfort. Jesus hears and Jesus helps those with little faith. Even little faith still moves mountains. Jesus himself is going to teach us that in some weeks to come. If your faith is small as a mustard seed, you can move that mountain. And why does little faith still offer dramatic deliverance? Because it is a little faith in an awesome Jesus, in the Lord Almighty. The little faiths left their nets behind. Little faith still followed Jesus into the boat. Little faith is actually going to be sent out by Jesus to share his message with the towns and the cities in the area. Yeah, little faith will desert Jesus on the last dark night. That's true. But Jesus will come back for that little faith. He'll pick it up, dust it off, and use it as the foundation of his church. Jesus hears and helps those, even with little faith, and he uses them as well. Oh, yeah, we should have greater faith. We should have a more impressive, more amazing faith, not disappointingly little faith like these disciples. But the main thing Jesus is trying to teach us through this story is not have more faith. The main thing is that Jesus saves those with little faith. Jesus is so powerful, and Jesus is 
so good. So what should we do with this? Well, first we should rub our noses in the answer to the disciples' question. What kind of man is this? Now, Jesus is one with all authority in heaven and on the earth. Absolutely nothing is outside of his command. Nothing, absolutely nothing can resist his word or his will. And the very same Jesus, that Jesus with all power is the one who saves little faiths. A few words from a commentator again. He says, this story is passed on by disciples because they want to encourage all subsequent disciples. Place their confidence in a Lord whose measure of help is not the measure of your faith or worthiness, but the measure of his grace. It's his grace that sees us saved, not the impressiveness of our faith or our works. What kind of man is this? One with all authority, one who's gracious to the weak. Second thing, we have little faith and our faith should grow. It should grow. Uh, Though I wish it weren't true, faith often grows best in the storm rather than in the calm. Now, surely these disciples' faith was a little bit larger when they got to the other side of that lake that day. Jesus could still every storm before it starts, stop them in their tracks, but he doesn't choose to run the show that way. Sometimes, in fact, he takes us right into the middle of storms. He does that for our good, so we're not left with a lifetime of little faith. At the same time, I guess, we do see that growing our faith is the work of a lifetime. And we'll see that as we follow the story of Jesus' followers here. Faith is oven cook, not microwave, which is frustrating. Our faith journey will last a lifetime. Chapter 14, which we'll get to eventually, like 200 years or so. You know, probably you'll still be here, but we'll see how we do. Chapter 14, um, the same faces a little further along the story in a boat again. And do you know what we see? We see some progress. Peter steps out of the boat with Jesus. He walks on the water like Jesus walks on the water rather than cowering in the hull, terrified of the ripples. But we'll see the journey's not over. We'll see him start to sink. And do you know why he's called again by Jesus? Little faith. Well, little faith again as he starts to sink. The journey takes time. It takes a long time. Even when you're walking around with Jesus, watching him do stuff, it takes a long time to grow our faith. Third and final thing. We should ask ourselves Jesus' question, why are you so afraid? I I know that fear or cowardice, if we want to respect the stronger word is Jesus is using here. I, I know that sometimes, often really, it holds me back from doing what I should, doing what I know I could, even from doing what I want to do. When it does that, I'm going to try and ask myself Jesus' question. Why am I so afraid? I want to encourage you to do that too. Let's see if we can have a week where we notice the fear and we ask ourselves, hang on me. Why am I, why am I so afraid? I know what kind of man this is. We'll see our serious doubts about whether Jesus is really there in the boat in that moment with me. We'll see our serious doubts, but whether he really has all authority over heaven and earth. When I ask myself that question, I think it's going to show me that I have so much more to learn.
But Jesus challenges us. He challenges us along with this comfort. Why are you so afraid? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into um, sharing bread and wine together. Lord God, why are we so afraid when we know all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus? We know he is always with us, even to the very end of the age. We know he loves us and cares for us. And yet you know what we're really like and you know how we really live. You know how little and weak and faltering our faith is. Thank you that you rescue cowardly little faiths and you don't uh, chuck them out and send them away but you're so good and so gracious that you rescue even those with little faith so Lord we pray rescue us save us and help us to grow help us not to be so afraid help us to learn and be able to believe what kind of man this truly is. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Um, if you've been around before, you'll know that we often have a chance to kind of interact with what we've been hearing. We don't want to just listen and observe people talking about the Bible. We want to think about it and chew on it ourselves. And so often we have a kind of question and response time afterwards, but we're not doing that this morning. Today we're going to do something different. We're going to share what's called communion. Uh, and that is an important part of church life. And we want our children to be present and observe that and be a part of that where they can. And to help facilitate that, I'm going to ask parents who uh, and carers with babies and toddlers in creche and only in creche to go and collect.